Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Tara Isabella Burton, author of Social Creature, about using trial and error to find your narrative voice, finding a place for social media in literary fiction, and writing about anxiety. The first party Lavinia takes Louise to. She makes Louise wear one of her dresses. I found it on the street, Lavinia says. It's from the 20s. Maybe it is. Someone just left it there. Can you believe it? Louise can't. They probably just thought it was trash. She puckers her lips. She puts on lipstick. And that is the problem with people. Nobody understands what things mean. Lavinia fiddles with Louise's collar. Lavinia ties the sash around Louise's waist. Anyway, the second I saw it, Christ, I wanted to... Oh, I just wanted to genuflect, you know. Kiss the ground. Do Catholics kiss the ground? Or is that just sailors? Anyway, I wanted to put my mouth right there on the sidewalk on somebody's chewed gum and say, like, thank you, God, for making the world make sense today. Lavinia puts powder on Louise's cheeks. Lavinia adds rouge. Lavinia keeps talking. Like, it's also fucking perfect, right? Like, somebody's grandmother or whoever dies in some random brownstone in the East Village nobody's even visited in 20 years, and they dump all her shit out into the street, and then... At sunset, here I am walking across East Ninth Street, and I find it. This old woman and I, who have never met, have these two beautiful, poetic nights, 90 years apart, wearing the exact same dress. Oh, Louise, can't you just smell it? Lavinia shoves the lace in Louise's face. You can fall in love, Lavinia says, wearing a dress like that. Louise inhales. So you know what I did? Lavinia gives Louise a beauty mark with her eyebrow pencil. I stripped down to my underwear. No, that's a lie. I took my bra off, too. I took off everything, and I put on the dress, and I left my other one in the street, and I walked all night wearing it, all the way back to the Upper East Side. Lavinia does Louise's buttons. Now Lavinia is laughing. Stick with me long enough. Now Lavinia is laughing. Stick with me long enough, she says, and I promise things will just happen to you like they happened to me. Hi, Tara, and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so grateful that you've stopped in. You've come all the way from Oxford as well. I have, I have. So we're very grateful. (laughs) We've all hyped ourselves up on caffeine and we're ready to go. (laughs) Um, For those of our listeners who've yet to read your debut novel, Social Creature, could you tell us what it's about? So it's sort of like, um, I always pitch it as the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, but with women. So it's the story of this toxic, obsessive emotionally codependent friendship between these two Instagram obsessed women in a bohemian decadent vintage subculture of New York City Uh, and it's a bit of the secret history a bit of Brett Easton Ellis a bit of Patricia Highsmith uh, all mixed together and and even though that sounds very convoluted it works so well it's we'll come on to all the kind of different themes that you've touched upon but it does it's so compelling and and like right from the off you notice that it's kind of written in quite an unusual voice it's kind of third person that sometimes addresses the reader directly what was it about this voice writing it in this style that that, um, appealed to you 
Well, in early drafts, um, something that I was really having trouble with is reconciling. On the one hand, um, Louise, the protagonist, is introduced into this incredible world where people are dressing in 1920s vintage and going to underground all-night parties and reciting Tennyson. And on the one hand, it's incredibly pretentious and silly and affected. And on the other hand, I had to sell the fact that there is something kind of beautiful and authentic and desirable about wanting to, I don't know, live your life as art or have more poetry. And I remember kind of wanting to tell the reader, like, all right, you know, we're, we know, we, we've all grown up now. We're not 13 anymore. We're too old for this. But just, you know, bear with me for a second. Just bear with me. Remember what it was like. Mm -hmm. And one day, just out of an experiment, I said, all right, why don't I just tell the reader that? And I did. And I started addressing the reader directly and saying something like, you know, you and I, we know we're too old for this now, but but don't you remember what it was? And that kind of narrative voice allowed me to have a kind of contract with the reader of where we're both complicit. The reader is framed as someone who is a little experienced, a little cynical, has been to all these parties before, has seen all this before. And yet the more that these seedy, rotting underbelly of this world is revealed, the more the reader is complicit in being a little distant and being too cynical and being as cynical as Louise comes to be. So it was a very intentional choice. Um, Can I just quickly ask, because I'm currently trying to work out what the narrative voice is for my book and I'm like struggling and I, you know, like I'm trying out loads of different things and working that out. How did you... How did you like come to that realization that that was the way? Like, um, what did you do to, to a lot of that? trial and a lot of error? Okay. Um, the first fifty, th I wrote fifty thousand words of a first person, okay. first person past tense uh, in Louise's voice, and it just wasn't working. And I think the what you really can't do, or I'm sure a better writer than I could do this, but when you have someone who's really deluded about their own motivations, and who is kind of doesn't know themselves. If they're the narrator, of course you can have an unreliable narrator, but it takes up so much of the book. Whereas I wanted to find a way of conveying both getting inside Louise's head and showing how unreliable she is, but also creating a real contrast between her perceptions and the world around her. And so it turned out, I think we did first person past, then first person present, then third person past, then third person present, every time I started over. So I think there's about like 200,000 words of just... Of, <laughs> you know stuff that I that's completely binned but ultimately um, I tend to write a lot I write really quickly and then I cut a lot so every like the novel I'm writing now I think I've already cut 150,000 words since January 1st um, mm -hmm. so basically I'm just not afraid to screw up and write bad stuff and not afraid to throw it out um, that's such a good tip, isn't it? Yeah. Like not being, not like, you know, I think you can sort of delay yourself yeah. because you think that you need to find out. Like that's what, I, that's yeah. what I'm procrastinating because I kind of think that I'm going to figure it out in my head and then just be able to sit down and write it. So that's, um, that's a, no, just I, bash out 150,000 words that I'm happy to cut. And then get rid of them. I sort of, what I do now is like, I know that every draft I write, and I think for Social Creature, there were four or five drafts. I print it out and then I restart from scratch even once it's done let alone the stuff that I threw out before it's done. And that's really helpful because I always know I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to throw this whole draft out so I can really make as many mistakes as I want, and then I end up writing more quickly and more freely. And half the time, when I give myself permission to just write, it ends up, I end up not cutting it, or I end up putting it back in. But just having that psychological crutch of, well, this isn't the final version, so I can mess around is really helpful. Interesting. 
And I think what worked so well with the direct addresses to the reader is that because the world is quite fantastical especially it opens quite quickly with this huge fantastical party it almost kind of draws the reader back into realizing hey we're in reality but they're in a sort of fantasy circus it's just it's just wonderful and we've touched upon Louise who Mm -hmm. is the, the the book's main protagonist but her almost counterpart if you will is Lavinia and she is an absolute gem of a character. You don't find characters like Lavinia often enough. I don't think she's larger than life. She's privileged, but she's charming and she's exciting and she's reckless. But there's also you've 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 really fleshed her out. So there's a slightly darker side to her as well. Um, was she fun to write? She seemed great fun oh, to create. She's so much fun to write and I think Lavinia or versions of Lavinia I've been writing since I was 19 um she all four of the main characters actually first appealed and all four of the main characters first appeared in a sort of failed unpublished novel uh from when I was 19 but I always wanted to write this character who not just wanted to live life as art but seems to seemed to have gotten all of her ideas about how life should be from the books she'd read and particularly from like 19th century books she'd read who just had no ability to deal with reality and increasingly um, financial privilege became a huge part of that because Lavinia's main motivation is she wants to live her life as art she wants to live poetically she drunkenly writes more poetry on her arm in sharpie in the novel's first chapter and it's a bit trite perhaps a bit cliche but it's totally for her sincere and for me it does come from a place of she doesn't have a strong sense of self, she doesn't have a strong internal sense of self, so she has to use art and literature and poetry and literary references and clothing to create this fake identity. But of course she's able to do that because she has parents bankrolling her lifestyle. She she has financial privilege, of course, but even more so she has the kind of class privilege of knowing she always has a safety net. So all of these risks she can take and all these mm. nights out she can have A, because her parents are funding it, but I think on a more fundamental level, because she knows she's never really going to have to... There's only so far she can sink, there's only so much she can screw up, there's only so irresponsible she can be, and she'll always, you know, she'll always be able to go back to school and finish her degree and find some job and otherwise be okay. So, you know, on the one hand, what she offers Louise is very beautiful and appealing, even if it comes from a place of insecurity. On the other hand, there's a, well, it's as much about privil- her privilege and her dumb luck as it is about her charisma or magnetism or intelligence or what have you. And there's that wonderful scene quite early on at this fantastical party where they decide to jump off a podium into the crowd. And it just, it's such a metaphor that they, Lavinia says, let's just jump and, and everyone will catch us. And it's that mentality of, I can do whatever I want and it's always going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Lavinia is in that, um, ill-intentioned. I think she can be quite a malignant person, but I think it's a sort of qu- quite childlike malignancy. She doesn't. She's a kid who wants attention and wants approval and doesn't understand why people can't all live the way she does. And she's got no empathy for. Well, surely she thinks you no. Know, everyone's got a trust fund. Surely everyone's got. Oh, does you know? Oh, you can't pay your rent. Well, surely your parents will pay. And it's this sort of childlike naivete that I'd say is quite quite common in New York. Um, quite widespread. I think um, New York is a city where a lot of people do come together from a variety of different class backgrounds, but particularly in the arts, particularly in literature or other 
that creative fields, you do have a high proportion of people who do have a safety net who are able to make it work. And I wanted to capture some of the fraught dynamics between those those people who have that, let's say, sense of security and those who, uh, by virtue of circumstance, do not. And how often in New York, these two people can appear quite similar on the outside. They might go to the same restaurant, they might have go to the, the same cocktail bar or the same overnight party, but one is, you know, putting it on a credit card, not thinking about it, and the other person is bringing cash and has counted out exactly how much it will cost. And from the outside, the two may look just the same, but what's going on uh, beneath the surface is much more complicated. Same as London, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Well, and I was just quickly. Do you think that's a quite millennial mindset as well? You know, this whole snowflake. You know that I, I'm entitled. You know, I'm entitled to things, and I shouldn't have to work really hard. And I didn't. Did that ever kind of? Did that influence uh, any of your? Yes and no. I mean, I think particularly somewhere like New York, certainly, the idea that privilege means you can have a job in the arts is nothing new. That said, there is something very particular about the gig economy uh, and the fact that um, I believe writer's salaries and freelance writer's salaries have not gone up uh, nearly as much as inflation in New York. I think I saw the other day um, some rate from an article in 1960 and it's the exact same numerical rate now with much less purchasing power. But I do think that certainly a, social media makes it easier to lie and appear um, that you have more resources than you do, and also sort of elements of the kind of quote-unquote in- influencer economy um, allows you to like literally make money off your self-presentation. You know, you have these influencers who who can stay at a hotel for free and post about it on Instagram, and that's just another part of you know. It's just another part of late capitalism, really. Mm. So to a degree, I think I think privilege and stories of privilege in New York are nothing new, but the way in which social media and the gig economy have intensified that. I mean, particularly with Louise, um, she, her jobs are, are piecemeal. She starts out the, the novel as a university admissions tutor for uh, Lavinia's younger sister, Cordelia, who's off at boarding school for much of the book, and um, realizes that, you know, all of her jobs are, are gigs and require a lot of emotional labor. As a as a tea tutor, she's required to kind of project a certain class background. She it says early on, you know, her job isn't so much to teach um, Cordelia or or whoever how to do math or English, it's to project the sense of, oh I'll help you get into Yale or Princeton. Then when she becomes Lavinia's best friend, she realizes how much Lavinia's paying for, she kind of does the calculations of how much money she's saving, moving in with Lavinia rent free. Lavinia is just one part of her gig economy, and that uh, ultimately poisons their friendship on both sides. Wow. And, um, and speaking of social media, um, it's obviously got a really central ro- um, role in your story. And right at the start, we kind of see them posing for selfies and filtering them and everything. And um, we'd love to know more about your thoughts on social media. You've obviously just touched on it. But do you think that Lavinia and Louise could exist, th- their, their characters or this book could exist without social media? Yes and no, which is to say this book is very much about social media. Um, it's very much set in that world, but my interest is, um, like, the self-creation and the idea of self-creation are, again, they're nothing new, and I think people are often a bit down on the internet saying, you know, we've we've all become fake and we're all on Instagram, and people have been doing that for centuries. Um, My doctorate um, was in uh, self-creation in late 19th century France, so I looked at the Paris of the Moulin Rouge and 
the dandy and you know absinthe de montre and a big part of my thesis was looking at the way in which the then newly popular um you know journalism industry the the you know your your gossip your average gossip paper uh it influenced an early version of the cult of celebrity the way in which early 19th century dandies would you know bring lobsters on leashes out into Paris in this form of identity creation. Even the, something I always find really fascinating about the periodism, a big, um, now I'm going to get geeky, but a big development in late 19th century Paris, two of them were the invention of um, the gaslight and the sort of development of the boulevards. So suddenly you had, rather than terrifying alleyways that you had to worry about getting murdered home at night, you had wide streets and you had evening lighting and suddenly what you wore on the street and what you wore as you promenaded promenaded down the boulevard became this kind of uh, of the see and be seen culture among this burgeoning middle class so you know always technological developments have gone hand in hand with new ways for people to create and display their identity it's like the second new technology comes uh, people find a way like a people find a way to like make porn with it and b people find a way to like show off with it so mm -hmm. social media is just for me uh, an exciting and interesting intensification of like a very human need mm -hmm. yeah. and and do you think that it's even possible now for writers to write a novel that is set in a contemporary time that doesn't include tech to some extent because you know we text each other now we ring well god we don't even ring each other a lot of the time we know the email so <laughs> do not use the phone for calling exactly I have to do it for work and i get like an anxiety attack every time <laughs> i have to do it so for for authors how does that impact how our characters communicate with one another so I can't speak for anyone else, but mm. I will say for me, um, a lot of the earlier stuff I've written, uh, Social Creatures, not my first uh, novel that I've written, it's the first one uh, that I think was made it through and I'm very glad it was, but a lot of my earlier, and I'll say less good work, uh, suffered from exactly that problem. Like I, you know, the books I love, I loved 19th century novels, I loved early 20th century, like modernist, you know, Ford Maddox Ford, I liked Henry James, I liked Dostoevsky, and so I tried to write like them. So my early work, I got, I was so uncomfortable, I was like, I think I used to use, like, the word mobile phone, because it just, you know, it seemed more elegant, like, I wasn't going to write about texting in my, you know, posh lyrical literature, and it was very dated and old-fashioned and, like, not very good. And then at a certain point, I started becoming interested in, like, if you want to write about the present day, if you want to write a lyrical, literary, poetic novel, you have to figure out how to use the the language of Instagrams and the language of likes and DMs and Twitter and use it authentically and even kind of create a new, like, poetry around it. How do you make it sound poetic? And I was influenced a lot by someone like Walt Whitman, the American poet, who, in kind of developing this sort of modern American style of poetry, combined a certain kind of older lyricism with something very unique. He gave a, created an American voice and, you know, not to like, in any sense, compare myself to a Titan like, like Whitman, but, you know, I wanted to know how do you write, like, how do you make Instagram poetic and lyrical? And I do think you have to, if you want to deal authentically, maybe not with any book in the modern age, but certainly a book about millennials or a book about New York or a book about London, you do have to figure out how to incorporate it. And now I'm actually, I think that there's something so exciting and lyrical and yeah, poetic about, about it. 
but that's something that I, I had to learn how to do. Yeah, because there's that sort of sense that if you're using words like she text him or, you know, or, you know, talking about Instagram, that it almost sort of, it cheapens it a little yeah. bit and it sort of turns it into a more sort of very, you know, literary light you know, yeah. it's almost sort of chick-litty. Yeah. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with those genres. I love reading those genres, but you know, it turns it from you know, it turns it into a sort of more of a beach read, a light read. Whereas actually, you're absolutely right that these things are permeating our culture so much that they're going to have to be included. And yeah, we're going to have to find language to it's reflect how, it's that. It's how we talk, isn't it? So yeah. Like, so think, like, it's just a very good point because like, I always think of social media. I'm like, oh god, I wish it didn't exist, but. It does exist, and if you want to write something contemporary, you have to think about it. Yeah. Mm. So it's a that's good for my book. Good note. Um, <laughs> so um, and that's why we do the podcast yeah. just for Amy's book. Just really. for my book. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I will stop talking about myself. Um, so um, we've spoken about kind of um, both of the characters having a, a darker side, and um, so we're just interested in how you bring kind of out how you how you went about bringing out those characters' darkness. With, while still making them kind of like believable characters without making them kind of like, you know, car- cartoon villains. Well, they're, they're both kind of self-portraits. So something that like constantly throws me when I read reviews and they're like, oh, it's a really good book about these two, so- about the sociopath and this narcissist. And I'm like, oh, whoa. <laughs> that, wasn't, that was not what I was going for. Um, but um, I think that both, I mean, I think that the characters are billed as opposites, but I don't think they are. I think that they're very similar. They're two women without a strong sense of self, uh, one of whom has always had, if not love, then at least the privilege to fail, and one of whom has never had that. But they're, they are these similar women, and I think they're both driven by this this kind of emptiness within them that also manifests itself as anxiety. Um, it was a line that came to me late in the process, but I feel like underpins the whole book, where Louise says, like, we cannot be known and loved at the same time. Uh, both of these women are so afraid that if people get to know the real them, they won't love them anymore. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because uh, Lavinia is so afraid that people only like her. Lavinia puts on this act of, of beauty and poetry and then convinces herself that people only like her because of her money when she's throwing her money at people um, and and being extravagant in order to get them to love her and then saying, well, no, they must only like me because of what I can do for them. So she's desperately insecure. Meanwhile, Louise says, you know, Lavinia only wants me because she wants to hire a best friend and have an Instagram buddy. Is that fair? Partly, but I think, you know, a lot of the scenes where we see Lavinia be quite abusive towards Louise, and I think she is, we also do see it from Louise's perspective and Louise's assumption that this is entirely mercenary. Uh, for example, there is a there's a scene in the third chapter at the opera that's um, a scene of like sexual intimacy between the two of them. And from Louise's perspective, we realize at some point that Lavinia's ex is in the room and Louise goes, oh, this is all just, you know, she's trying to make her ex jealous. This is just her putting on yet another display, just her using me and she feels used and she's violently angry about this. We don't know, and this is very intentional, um, what Lavinia is thinking. Is she, is she creating a performance for her ex? Is, does she feel insecure and so she's trying to feel better about herself and it's not quite so performative but it's still manipulative in a sense? Does she even know her ex is there? Does she just want a moment of connection? Is she in love with her friend? We, we don't know, but 
always the anxiety of both characters causes them to assume the worst in each other. Uh, I believe that these are women who are in love with each other and, you know, with a lot of time and therapy uh, could in another universe have developed a, a positive and healthy friendship. And I think the tragedy of the book is that they they both get in their own way so much and that the tragedy of the book is, is kind of not that these are bad people or sociopaths or narcissists, but that these are very flawed people who just can't get out of their own way in order to have any kind of intimacy or love. It's really interesting that you mention how we don't know what Lavinia's thinking and that we and that they're sort of flawed and we can never really know them because one of the things that really struck me when I was reading it was actually how much I didn't feel like I could get into Louise's head. She seems like it's like we're told what she does we're told what she's thinking and yet I, I felt like I could never quite know her I could never quite underpin her motivations and then and I wondered how you sort of went about trying to achieve that because we it's like we come to absolutely understand them from a very sort of objective point of view but I can't I can't it's like I couldn't be friends with Louise and I wanted a did you no, you shouldn't be friends with Louise. <laughs> nobody should be friends well, with Louise. well no obviously um, um but did you like her or did you feel like you had maybe it's a sort of empathy thing I felt like I couldn't empathize very well with her how did you feel about them from that did you like them did you empathize um, with them when you were writing them? I absolutely empathized with them I did not like them um I don't like the language of the likable character I I don't find it when I think about my writing don't necessarily find it helpful um I think I'm sort of inherently cynical. I think if you get to know anyone well enough, they're probably not likable. You know, likable likability is about surface qualities. I wanted readers to get to know both Louise and Lavinia well enough not to like them. To know, you know, you, you maybe they like you like them when you first meet them because you like anyone when you first meet them. You have a coffee, people are charming, then you get to know someone, they show you their flaws, they show you their weaknesses, they show you their brokenness. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't love them and I you know I, I would hope that that you can one can foster if not full-on empathy then at least a kind of sympathy for these women and what they're going through you might not like them one shouldn't like them but I would want readers to come away saying god like these women are really sad and I I, I might not be able to viscerally understand them but I I know why they are the way they are I I see you know other ways their life had not turned out. I see the mistakes they make and I want to shout at them, no, don't make that mistake, and maybe come away from it and in their own lives say, like, I know someone like that. I know someone who's I always disliked or dismissed, but now I realize they're covering up their insecurity. Or I know someone who posts all the time on social media and my God, they're so annoying. But, you know, there's there's something really vulnerable and beautiful there about their, their desire to, to be known on their own terms. And so I do want... I absolutely do not want readers to like or want to be friends with either character, but I do hope that ultimately they care about both characters, come away with a, sen a sense of empathy, ideally for both of them, and then a sort of wider sense of empathy for unlikable characters in real life too, I guess. I, I think it's so much more interesting to read about read about unlikable characters because it makes you reflect on the things and your own securities yeah. and your own stuff and like and in this book you know you've written kind of you've touched on kind of like insecurity anxiety like mm -hmm. self-doubt like the feeling like you're unlovable if you show your true self which is something that I think all women and probably yeah. men go through too um like so how did you um was that something that you deliberately when you came up with your character and you came up with a story you thought those are the themes I'm going to address here oh absolutely yeah. honestly the story came later um I knew I wanted to write about 
anxiety and specifically kind of pathological anxiety, um, an abandoned project that I started before writing um, this book that is now going to come out. A few of the stories are coming out in different forms was a, a series of like New York set feminist retellings of Gothic tales. Um, and in a lot of Gothic stories, there's like the protagonist suffers from mysterious illness or neurasthenia, like the fall of the house of Usher has this, this, guy come to you know the usher household and roderick usher is this mysterious illness and he can't listen to sound and he you know sensitive to light and i thought well what is sort of that mysterious illness for the the 20th for the 21st century my god um and i thought like depression and anxiety both of which i struggle with are often these kind of nameless illnesses so i started this project of of rewriting and i rewrote dorian gray i rewrote jekyll and hyde uh, fall of the house of usher uh carmilla some of which are, are now out or coming out, some of which are on my hard drive. But I wanted to write like about anxiety. And then I was I was talking to my, my agent and it was just this like one-off comment she made. Um, and she was, I told about this idea of this book. I was going to write this novel, which was similar to Social Creature, but it was about the relationship uh, between a, uh, a woman and a dead girl sister. And uh, which I, without giving too much away, feeds into the novel and you know it was like once again a kind of plotless novel a little bit too introspective and my agent wasn't like really having it and she was like you know being very polite and then she said you know it's a shame no one's ever written a female talented Mr. Ripley like you'd never think of doing that would you and I was like no I would never do that like that sounds silly and then I'm like <laughs> I walked home and I was like wait a second and all of these ideas that had been percolating in my mind and these sort of half-finished projects and I went oh this story this vehicle is the perfect way to explore this theme this is the perfect way to explore this character you're literally like what better way to talk about imposter syndrome than have a ripley story um so i never actually set out to write a, a thriller or a literary thriller or whatever you whatever this is you whatever category one put social creature on in the bookshelf um i wanted to write a story about these two women and anxiety and it felt it came to me later that a story in the Highsmith mold, uh, or in the story in the Talented Mr. Ripley mold, was the right way to explore that theme. Well, I was going to ask you actually about where you've taken inspiration from, but you've actually talked incredibly elegantly already. But if there were so many things I felt like the book touched on, like um, Gatsby, there's a little bit of Gatsby in there, a yeah. little bit of. Um, uh, Cruel Intentions, yeah. which is such a millennial reference, but if you like Cruel Intentions, you're going to love this book. Um, what would you suggest for, in terms of finding inspiration, if you're writing a book, how do you go about it? How do you think authors should go about it? Should they read things that interest them, or should they read completely out of genre to kind of push them out of their comfort zone? Or what are you drawn to that then influences your work? So. I, I know that what I'm sort of drawn to, and I, I, I'm making an effort to read outside of it, because I, I like big 19th century doorstops. Like, I like Russian novels. I was think, you know, thinking about this, that so much of Social Creature is like a direct response to, again, like a titan I should not be comparing myself to. This is like very, but I love Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. It's another story of someone who commits an unthinkable crime and has sort of a spiritually corrosive, guilt-ridden aftermath about it. And I and so you know that was a major inspiration. Um, I love Henry James, and I love the way he writes about class and these tiny little social distinctions, often developed through very subtle dialogue in his novels. Um, but also, um, I love pulp. Like I love Riverdale. I love Gossip Girl. I love bad TV. And I think that like 
something that I really enjoy as a as a writer is is you know combining these sort of highfalutin literary influences with like a genuine love for like pulp and bad television and soap operas and noir and kind of trying to tell a story hopefully a solid literary story that encompasses a range of references and a range of modalities and tone um i was talking about this um my colleague at vox.com constance grady was interviewing me and um something i really admire about her writing is she's a book writer and a tv writer and she will write the most incisive cultural essays about gossip girl and riverdale as well as about margaret atwood and she often will say like so much of how we understand culture is mediated through low culture or through you know bad TV can tell us a lot about what we as a society value, what we care about, you know, and I think, um, so I I try to draw my influences from all over, you know, my playlist while I was writing this social creature was everything from 30s big band jazz and Django Reinhardt to like the Pet Shop Boys and 80s goth rock. Um, (coughs) And... Yeah, so I think in terms of inspiration, A, like, I will always encourage people to read the classics. Like, everyone should read 5,000-page Russian novels all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that the more broadly one reads, and also the more open one is to, like, inspiration outside one's medium, like, whether that's bad TV or poetry or, or cinema, I think just having a wide range of influences is, is no bad thing. That's cool. Um... So there's been kind of a re- recent trend in the last few years of kind of having these stories that are about kind of women that are kind of cunning and, you know, obviously gone girl and stuff like that. Um, so what do you think it is that, about these types of characters that's so kind of appealing to such a wide audience? I think in general we're always excited, or I as a reader am always excited about female characters that are interesting and who are interesting and who have agency and who are a little screwed up. I love Gone Girl, and I love Gone Girl in part because the character of Amy is so transgressive. She especially, sometimes I think one can find in like, I'm not naming names, but in like TV or movies, a, a quote unquote strong female character who is, or a quote unquote transgressive female character who's just like vaguely badass, but not that interesting or transgressive. You know, she breaks a few societal rules, but she's not actually like striking at the core of the heart of what a woman is where someone like Amy and Gone Girl like literally lies about a rape which is just the most sort of one of the most transgressive things you can do in our cultural moment something that like underpins like like makes you the worst feminist ever and yet she's so compelling because she's so transgressive now I don't think Louise is cunning at all like Louise's plan is is a very like all of her plans of this book are incredibly stupid she is not a Tom Ripley she's not a con artist she's not a criminal mastermind her only she is an incredibly short-sighted woman driven by panic mode every decision she makes in the book is literally how do I buy myself five more minutes of time um it's it's you know I'm sure if you want to like unpack her decisions they're all deeply stupid um (laughs) she's just you know how can I how can I make people not hate me for five more minutes and so she for me she's not you know she's not a strong female character at all she is weak as hell she's constantly in survival mode constantly in panic mode desperately afraid of being found out um but I think I hope she's interesting and I think that the more female characters and the more varied female characters that are transgressive and interesting and speak to 
wider cultural questions of insecurity and anxiety and what it means to be a woman, uh, the better. There's a, it's a very broad tent and certainly there's a lot of room under it. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, those things that you've just mentioned, they sound extreme, you know, and I, you know, Louise's version of I need to survive another five minutes is quite extreme. But I think that those feelings of I'm an imposter, I'm going to be found out, I, what can I do to make people like me, how can I change myself to make sure I fit in with the people around me, I think those are actually quite universal and very common. You know, neuroses that a lot of women and men share. Mm. Absolutely, I think so. I mean, I think something that I love about sort of my pulp influences in particular and about the thriller genre as it pertains to social creature is you get to take very, like, ordinary human emotions, or I wouldn't say ordinary, very relatable and fundamental and universal human emotions and crank them up to 11. You get to raise the stakes as I, I always used to, I used to study a lot of theater and, and my acting teacher would always say, like, what decision can you make in the moment that will raise the stakes? Like, the scene will be more interesting the more you raise the stakes, whatever choices you make. And I think I apply that to my writing. Like, how can you how can you raise the stakes in a story about imposter syndrome? Like, probably having a literal imposter syndrome thing going on. I'm trying to say that without spoilers. Oh, because <laughs> that's exactly what you do. You raise the stakes basically on each, kind of in each chapter. But yeah, it's without saying anything that's going to give it away because there are some, <laughs> there's some high stake stuff going on. <laughs> Um, so what's what's next for you? You sound uh, like you're very busy. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so I am hoping to, by the end of August, finish my next novel. I'm about a third of the way in now. Um, it's also, I guess you could call it a literary thriller. It's more of a noir, uh, a coming-of-age noir set in a New England boarding school. I pitched it to my agent as um, Blue Velvet meets a separate piece. So a kind of surreal story about these um, two students who appear to have murdered an English teacher and vanished from campus and gone on this sort of live-blogged Bonnie and Clyde murder rampage. Um, And they've left behind this underclassman who's idolized them, who's left behind. It's her favorite teacher who's been murdered, who's trying to figure out why they did what they did, what could possibly have driven these two people to basically go, go crazy and do this. And as she has her sort of investigation on campus while they're on the run, um, their, her story kind of underpin, uh, her story and her investigation and her coming of age story uncovers, you know, seedy sexual and financial secrets throughout this small New England boarding school town. So, yeah. Very, Sounds great. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm gripped already. Yeah. Weird, <laughs> weird Lynchian boarding school. And I went to a New England boarding school. So it, it's, it was great because at some point I realized um, both Social Creature and this, this new book are very much rooted in my experience. I grew up in New York and, and uh, every party um, that is in Social Creature is a party I personally attended. Huh. Um, pr- n- none of that is made up. That party, the New Year's party at the beginning and end is based on the parties I go to at the McKittrick uh, Hotel, which is this um, punch drunk theater company's performance space. So here too, I was like, oh, I just put all my weird boarding school stories in here and everyone's <laughs> going to think they're fiction. Um, and I, I, I have occasionally had you know, my editor in, in Social Creature was like, come on, like, that's really over the top. Like, do we want to put that in? I'm like, that happened. <laughs> that's there. We're going to keep that. We're going to keep that one. So, oh, well, so we, that. we can't wait to read it. Yeah, thank but, you so much. Got to finish it first. No, I, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm telling everyone it's going to be, I'm going to finish in two months. We believe in you. We, we do. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. 
Um, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. Thank you.